This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Peter called Stand Firm in Grace. So let's see what the Lord has to say to us in 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 21. And you should see the text on the screen behind me. Listen to the word of God. Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. And this passage begins with one of the most important words in the New Testament, which is the word, therefore. Therefore. And it's a bit of a cliche, but you may have been taught, whenever you see the word, therefore, you should ask what it's there for. Because the New Testament always links together the great act of God in the gospel with how we then are to live our lives. The gospel has come to not just to rescue us from the punishment of sin, but to redeem us from its power, and when Jesus comes again, its total presence in our lives. There is no true Bible message which does does not challenge us and transform us. And if we close the word of God without feeling uncomfortable, without feeling the finger of the Holy Spirit pressing and probing into our hearts and into our actions, we have not truly understood what God is saying to us. Therefore, this letter does not end at verse 12. There is a therefore which goes on with God's expectations for us to change. But in balance, we also need to remember the gospel does not begin here. This is not how Peter begins his letter. And if Peter's opening words were, be holy for God is holy, that would not be good news. That would be a message that would crush us and leave us in despair. But when we have truly understood and received what Christ has done for us, we realize this is a living hope. The resurrection power of Jesus is meant to actually change our hearts and our thoughts and our actions. And Peter begins this moral exhortation by speaking about our minds. Isn't that interesting? That 
the very first practical step involves your mind. This organ up here, it begins with how you think. And this is not something unique to Peter. Paul, of course, talks about being transformed by the renewing of your minds. It begins with your mind. And the gospel is not some kind of anti-intellectual, purely emotional message. It starts with changing how you think. And wrong thoughts will quickly lead you astray. I'm not talking about the ideas that are just on the surface of your brain, the correct answers that we can all recite if pressed, but the deep convictions that emerge in times of temptation and crisis. What do we really believe? What are our true convictions about God and the world and ourselves? And the reason we come here week after week and listen to the word of God is so that the way we think is changed and our whole mentality starts to merge in with this book. And when you prick our brains, they should bleed the Bible. And Peter is urging his readers to prepare their minds for action. And the underlying analogy there is about girding up your loins, a very Old Testament expression. I don't think anyone's girded up a loin for thousands of years. But back in the old days, people would wear long flowing robes. And when some serious work needed to be done, if you needed to dig a ditch or attack a city, there was a way you'd gather up your robes and hook them under you and tie them around your waist so that your body was completely freed for any action that would be demanded. It's just like rolling up your sleeves to get a piece of work done. Putting on your boots and your old jeans that can afford to get dirty so you can get to work. That, Peter is saying, is what needs to happen with our brains. They're meant to be used. They're not meant to sit in pristine shape down in the garage with just one or two miles on the odometer. You go down and polish carefully. God gave you a brain to use. And I know some Christians treat the brain like people used to treat the appendix as some vestigial organ. We're not quite sure what it's there for, and it can be safely removed without any noticeable effects. That should not be the case in your life. We are called to love the Lord our God with all of our minds. God gave us a mind to love him and to follow him, and that mind needs to be shaped by the word of God. And these minds need to be sober minds, not vague and confused, not foggy or groggy or anything rhyming with Augie. They should be clear and sharp minds, sober-minded, realistic, not staggering around in the middle of the road, groping for a lamppost. We need to have clear minds that have a strong grip on the truth of God. And what Peter is saying about our minds here, what they need to be gripping is the hope that we have in Christ. It's not just a mere set of notions and academic theology. Our minds need to be set, have our, to, we use our minds to set our hope fully on the grace that is to be given to us when Jesus Christ is revealed. God has a glorious future planned for all of us who believe in Jesus. 
And we need to respond to that future by deliberately, with mental purposefulness, setting our thoughts and our hearts and our hope on what God has for us. And this doesn't require that anyone here be some kind of genius or to have multiple degrees after your name. It does require that we use whatever faculties God has given us upstairs to focus fully on the hope that's going to be brought to us. Fully. Setting your hope fully on that, what God has for us. Our entire weight of our expectations needs to be leaned on what God is planning. Tomorrow morning at 5.30, I'm taking a flight and I'm going to London for seven or eight days. And I bought some travel insurance online. It cost me $12. And I paid about an extra 60 cents to upgrade from $200,000 of medical insurance to $500,000. And the fact that it was such a small amount means that the chances of me tripping and falling down the stairwell of a double-decker bus or being trampled by a herd of badgers is depressingly low. There is a very minuscule chance I will ever cash in on that insurance. But just for my peace of mind, I purchased it, I don't know, weeks, perhaps months ago, so I no longer have to think about it. And it's very easy to think about our future in Christ the same way. Just for our own peace of mind, just in case this eventuality happens, it's covered. But we've invested a very small amount in. We put our $12, maybe even our extra 60 cents, if we're like crazy radical Christians, But the vast majority of our talent and time and treasure is devoted to things of this world. And Peter is challenging us to set our hope fully, to lean our entire weight, to put our full confidence in what God is going to do for us. 100%. Jesus said that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. If you invest in something, that is what is going to occupy your mind. I sell books on Amazon and Apple and these other places, and every day I check my reports to see just how much money I've made while I've been sleeping. That's awesome. That's my treasure, and my heart goes there continually to check. And it's a revelation of where our treasure is as to how we are thinking. What do our minds dwell on? If you have just a little neutral time, you're sitting on the bus looking out the window, nothing immediate is demanding your attention, what are your thoughts going to? And for myself, to be honest, as I would suspect many of us, the amount of time I spend thinking on the new heavens and the new earth and the coming of Christ is measured in minutes, if not seconds, per week. The tiniest little fraction of my mental energy goes to this huge and enormous thing that God has in store for me. Richard Baxter was an English pastor of several hundred years ago, and his wife passed away. And in his grief, he resolved upon this discipline. He said to himself, I'm going to spend 30 minutes each day meditating on the joys of heaven. Every single day, day after day, he would set aside half an hour in his schedule to meditate on what God had in store for him. 
And it was eventually published as this massive book called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. But imagine for yourself, if you were diligently setting aside time every day or even every week to deliberately meditate on the hope that you have in Christ, I guarantee you would be a different person after a year of doing that. I guarantee you would be a different person. Because what you lean your hopes on determines everything about you. Because it speaks to what you value supremely. What you love more than anything else is the thing that you're going to be thinking about. And when you start meditating, when you start setting your hope fully and firmly on what God has for you, you cannot help but be changed. And God's will will be done in your life here on earth as it will be in heaven. There's a wonderful book I can recommend, in fact, to make this practical for you. It's called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Has anyone read this book? It is, no one has read that book. Wow, it's an, you guys are really missing out. It's a supremely joyful book. And Randy Alcorn is a man thoroughly informed by scripture. This is not one of those heaven tourism books. You know, the, one of the first books, you know these books about someone who died and went to heaven and came back and they have their report? One of the very first books, the one that started it all, was written by a kid who reported to his father, and he later admitted that he made the whole thing up to get attention. And the Christian publishing company refused to pull it from publication because they were making so much money on these sales. That is not, we don't go to people's dreams and imaginations to find out what God has for us. We don't need to. It's in the word of God. And when you start soaking in that word, when you start meditating on the new heavens and the new earth, and all these glorious texts and Revelation and Isaiah and Thessalonians, what is going to happen at the revelation of Jesus Christ? You will become a changed person. And this hope that Peter's readers had was no mere abstraction floating up here. Because they, in following Jesus, had made hard choices. They had made really hard choices. Being a disciple of Jesus for them in that society meant saying no to many possibilities of wealth and status and privilege and opportunity. Their hope was something that changed the course of their life. And I imagine after saying no to those things, there were many temptations to regrets. Just like the people of Israel in the wilderness started longing for the garlics and onions of their slavery. I'm sure there were times when there was that twinge, ah, following Jesus is hard and costly, and that could have been me. And Peter's reminding them, no, you need to stick your mind firmly to what God has for you. And this is grace. This is future grace. Our hope is not on something we're building for ourselves, which so easily tends to collapse in on itself and disappoint us, this is a grace that God is going to bring us. Grace is by no means purely or even mostly a past event for Christians. Most of the good things God has for you, by far most of the good things God has for you are still to come. And we enjoy many good things, and we have celebrated them this afternoon. But the vast majority still awaits us. 
And how foolish it would be for us to give up now, to let go of our hope now that God is guarding for us. So the first word that determines the Christian's moral life as a disciple of Jesus is hope. The second one is holiness. A very old-fashioned word, isn't it? Holiness is a bit of a difficult and awkward word and not the first one we would use to describe ourselves. But Peter says, as obedient children, notice not obedient slaves, as obedient children, born again into God's family as children, but obedient children, don't let yourself be conformed by your passions. And passions in the New Testament almost always means just evil desires and insatiable cravings. It's the lowest level of the flesh. And Peter's readers well knew what he was talking about because it was the lifestyle of their pagan neighbors and maybe their own lifestyle as well. And there were a few people in the ancient world who followed the noble and wise path of the philosophers, but very few. And the ordinary man in the street was all about getting roaring drunk and going to the gladiator fights and Um, hiring prostitutes and molesting small children and lying and cheating and stealing wherever he could. It was a messy, horrible, gross kind of life. And Peter's saying we all have this temptation within us to be conformed by those things. And we all have deep and dark desires, and yours are not the same as mine, but bubbling and blurping down below the surface, there are some nasty things. And what those things want to do is to make us conform to them. You notice it's a passive word. We're being conformed by our desires. Following these desires is not the path of authenticity and freedom. It's slavery. And the addict who goes back to the bottle again and again, that person is doing what they want, but in a way they're not doing what they want, are they? They're enslaved to their choices because they're governed by their lowest and worst desires. And we have to be aware because all those desires that each of us has has the potential to seduce us and even destroy us. I don't know how many of you remember, I think it was the, the World Cup in 2006, France versus Italy. Do you remember that, that final? And France was on a trajectory to win that final and that game. And their best player was Zinedine Zidane, He had already won the player of the match, and in the 110th minute, an Italian player said something to him. Rumors were that it was about his mother, but it was actually about his sister. He said something very gross and insulting about Zidane's sister. And Zidane turned, and in a moment he later described as one of his blood boiling and his passions just exploding, he turned around and he butted this Italian player in the chest. And Zidane was, he got a red card, he was ejected from the game, and Italy won on penalties. And that moment of passion, when his discipline lapsed for a moment, may well have cost Zidane and France the World Cup. He had severely disciplined his body over the years. He was one of the best players in the world, but his mind in that moment, was not disciplined, and he acted according to his passions, and he lost something precious. 
The book of Proverbs says that a person without self-control is like a city without walls. In the ancient world, you would not have wanted to live in a city without walls because any animal or any bandit or any robber or any enemy could have come in and killed you and taken what was yours. And that is what people without self-control are like. You can build a huge, shining city, but without walls, you're in constant danger of death and destruction. And so let me ask you, do you ever say no to your desires? Is there any kind of warfare in your heart between your highest hopes and your lowest cravings? Some of us are very used to just taking the easy way every single time because we're lazy. Fighting is difficult. Ah, I don't want to fight. I would like to coast, just coast smoothly along while Jesus takes care of everything for me. But there must be warfare. That's this true sign of life. We cannot allow ourselves just to be controlled by every passion and craving that bubbles up. We need to remind ourselves that God is better. God is better. And his love is better than life, better than any craving that I could possibly satisfy is beholding the face of God himself. That is the true satisfaction that we are all made for. So, we're not to allow ourselves to be conformed and shaped and molded by our passions and cravings. We're called to something greater and higher than that kind of life. God's calling on every single person here is that you be holy. Be holy as I am holy. It's from the book of Leviticus. And that command in Leviticus wasn't just for the priests and the Levites. That was God's command on the entire nation of Israel. They were all to be holy priests to the Lord. And holiness is not some radical higher call just for the great saints of Christian history. That is the call that God has on every single person here. You are called to be holy. And you might be a completely ordinary muggins, but God is calling you to be a holy person set apart for him. Do you know that you become like what you worship? Everyone is bowing down to something to something they value supremely above everything else. And when you look at something in love often enough, you start to become like that thing. And that was the reason that the pagans were worshiping the way they did. That's what their gods were like. I don't know if any of you have ever ventured into the swamp that is American daytime television. There is a show called Jerry Springer. Do not watch this show. I have in the past, so you didn't have to. And a typical show would be some guy admitting in front of the audience that he had, I don't know, slept with his daughter's piano teacher, and then his wife and his girlfriend start picking up chairs and smashing him over the head. It's just a gross show, to be honest. And you feel like you need to take a shower after watching this show, and then just burn your clothes for good measure, and throw your TV out the window. And this really was the world of the Greek gods. There was nothing holy about the Greek gods. They had all the vices and passions and cravings of the ordinary man in the street was what the life of the gods 
was like. There was nothing holy about them. The Lord God of Israel is holy. And he burns with a light so white that it would destroy any sinner or any creature who comes into his presence. He's awesome and transcendent and completely unlike anything we have ever experienced. And to come before the face of God is terrifying. It's a deeply traumatic experience. And people who experience the holiness of God find themselves being undone, coming unglued. Just their sheer creatureliness cannot handle the majestic, burning holiness of God. And before the face of God, even the angels themselves, sinless angels and seraphim, cover their faces with their wings as they cry, Holy, holy, holy. This is the God that we worship, the God who has called us and summoned us. And God has called us to cross the gulf that separates him from his creatures. And because God is holy, to live with this God, we too must and do become holy ourselves. And so the lowest and humblest and poorest Christian that Peter is writing to is called to be a holy person. And for his readers, they felt they felt awkward and displaced. It's not a comfortable feeling to be very different from your neighbors. And we're all ultimately like teenagers in high school, desperately trying to fit in and not be weird. But to be different is to be good if we're set apart for God. We should be kind of weird by the standards of this world. We should be very odd people to those who worship their lowest cravings because we're set apart as priests to a holy God. And really, Christians should be too proud to sin. You should be too proud to sin. Why on earth are you going to act like a dog eating its vomit when God has called you to great things? You're called to stand before the face of God and to minister through, uh, before the throne. Why on earth are you rooting around in this disgusting garbage? We should be ashamed of ourselves for even desiring those kind of things. We should stand up a little straighter and live like the sons and daughters of God. And Peter says this holiness needs to characterize all of our conduct. It's a pervasive thing. It's not meant just for the religious aspects of our lives, but for everything we do should be marked as holiness. The most ordinary actions should be priestly actions offered up in worship to God. Hope is word number one. Holiness is word number two. Word number three is judgment. Judgment. Peter says, if you call on him as Father, as Jesus taught us, our Father who art in heaven, if you call on God as Father, don't forget that our God is a judge and he is an impartial judge. 
That's a sobering word. When we come to God as our Father, we must never forget that this Father is also the one who is going to judge us. And Jesus and the apostles and the whole New Testament speak often of a time of judgment that is coming. And this judgment is for everybody. Not just for unbelievers, but for Christians as well, because God shows no partiality. And we shouldn't be thinking, oh great, the judge is our father. I have my Jesus card here so I can avoid being judged. God shows no partiality. If anything, you being a child of God and a disciple of Jesus means you will be held to a higher standard than those who are living in ignorance. I heard a message one time on this text of Jesus in Matthew 7, where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one, do you remember the rest of the verse? who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And this person preached a sermon on the text, and he said, but of course, we're all sinners, and none of us can do the will of God. Thank God Jesus has done this for us. Amen. That was his sermon. And that was a travesty and a twisting of the word of God. Being a disciple of Jesus does not excuse you from judgment. And there's this idea in popular Christianity that we've all absorbed somehow that on the day of judgment, when God says, give me an account for your life, that we're going to say, oh, I have my Jesus card here. I belong to Jesus. Look at his record instead. That is not how things are going to go down. Every time the New Testament speaks of judgment virtually, it speaks of us being judged according to to our deeds, how we have actually lived our lives. Not that what we do is going to merit or deserve heaven, but it is going to be the evidence that we really did trust Jesus. I thought it was brilliant in that Hillsong, Christ is enough, that they wove into that song, I have decided to follow Jesus. That's the test on whether we really do believe that Christ is enough, that we really have given him the entire trust of our lives. The test is, have we actually followed him? Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. Not everyone who says, Jesus, Jesus. But those who have actually trusted Jesus enough to follow him. That is the test. And that realization should fill us with a sense of healthy fear. Imagine standing before the throne of God as the Almighty slowly flips through the choices you've made in your life and goes over everything. I dare say there are a few things we would wish we had done differently there is a 100% chance of you being audited. And not a quick superficial audit, a detailed audit. And everyone here is going to give an account to God of every thought, of every choice, of every decision in all of our lives. That should fill us with sober fear. Because our God is a consuming fire. 
and he will not be treated lightly. And this fear of God means feeling the weight of God in everything you do. Giving God the same weight in your own life as he actually has in reality. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And God will not allow himself to be treated flippantly or in an easy, breezy, kind of casual manner. And this God that we worship, the Lord before whom we dance, is the same God who struck down Uzzah when he reached out to steady the ark. And the Holy Spirit who fills this place is the same Holy Spirit who struck down Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to him about what they had given to the Lord. There should be a sense of healthy fear and awe when we come before God. And somehow, of course, that fear is combined with joyful confidence before God. It's one of those paradoxes of the Christian life. We're fearful and joyful at the same time. I am by no means a mechanical person, and I took shop class for a year in high school, and I was highly anxious the whole time because there were saw blades running everywhere, and I felt like I never really got adequate safety training. The guy was like, yeah, you know, go saw your piece of wood. And I was extremely nervous that I was going to end up with just a couple of bloody stumps by the end of the course. But my brother is this kind of person. He's an electrician. He now works for the Canadian military. And yes, we do have one. And um, Walter is an electrician. And he does his work with confidence because he's been trained well. He's not paralyzed, huddling in the corner. He does his work with confidence, but he has a healthy fear of the thousands and thousands of volts that are passing through the lines that he's dealing with. And if he's not careful to turn off the power and double-check and triple-check that, things are going to go very badly for my little brother. Confidence and fear can happen at the same time. And somehow in our Christian life, those two things should be be reflected in how we live before God. My great-grandfather was a very godly man. He was a wooden shoemaker. Any guess as to what country he was from? He was Dutch. He made wooden shoes for a living. He was a man who worked with his hands. And he was a godly man. My aunt remembers visiting her grandparents at a young age, and she could hear him singing psalms in his bedroom as he worshipped God. But he was not a man of many words. And in 1943 or 1944, my grandfather was called up by the Germans and sent to Munich for forced labor to bake bread for the German army. And before he left, his father saw him off at the station. And his dad shook his hand, and all he said to him was this, Son, remember what I've taught you. So my grandfather went off to this strange land, the land of the enemy, and he lived in Munich for um, a couple of years baking bread for the Germans, and he had a certain degree of freedom. And one night he was in a beer hall in Munich having a drink after a long day's work. And there were all these Germans in there. And the door swung open, and a guy in uniform walked in, and he clicked his heels together and saluted like this and said, Hail Hitler! And everyone in the beer hall stood up and saluted and shouted, Hail Hitler! in unison. And my grandfather paused with his beer halfway to his lips 
Like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? This is a terrible situation. And he told me many years later, he was, of course, he was afraid of the Nazis. He wasn't an idiot. He knew what they could do. But he said, in that moment, I was more afraid of my father. Because if my father ever found out that I had stood up and given the Nazi salute, I would be in big, big trouble. He was more afraid of what his father would say, this father that he respected and honored so highly, than all these brown shirts around him. And is that not a picture of how the fear of our Heavenly Father should shape our lives? Not the fear that God's going to smash us with a heavy hand, but because we so honor and esteem God and we so feel his presence around us wherever we go that the fear of God himself drowns all the smaller and lesser fears that we have. Hope, holiness, judgment. The last word that should shape our discipleship is this, ransom, ransom. Conduct your lives in fear, knowing that you were ransomed, Peter says. And to be ransomed, to be redeemed means that your freedom has been purchased with a price. Your freedom has been purchased with a price. It refers to buying slaves from the slave market. And what you were ransomed from, Peter says, is this. The useless, feudal tradition inherited from your ancestors. And in the ancient world, like in many cultures today, nothing is venerated so highly as the way of life passed down from the ancestors. How your culture has been living for hundreds and thousands of years, you treat that with the utmost respect. And Peter says, however noble that might be, however venerable, however ancient, in the end, every way of life that is not governed by Jesus, it's useless. It is a dead end, and it leads only to despair. And this, Peter says, is what Jesus has ransomed us from by his blood, the old, useless, empty way of living. And that price is not silver or gold. It's the precious blood of Jesus, the most valuable thing imaginable in the universe. That is how we've been ransomed. It's very striking that Peter is saying, knowing this, knowing that you've been ransomed by the blood of Jesus, should fill you with fear. That is so unexpected, isn't it? We would think to be filled with joy and confidence and love. But for Peter, the accent is on fear, a holy fear. When we start to become aware of just what God has expended to ransom us from a dead way of life, when we realize that God has given everything for us, that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, that should fill me with a holy fear. There are awesome forces at work in my deliverance. And woe to me if I treat that with contempt. 
If having been bought with the blood of Jesus, I then go back to my old way of life and willingly choose the slavery from which Jesus has delivered me, woe to me, because God will not treat anyone lightly who treats Jesus lightly. Hope, holiness, judgment, and ransom. Peter is calling us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. To live a life worthy of the gospel. And that means not that my life deserves the gospel, but that the gospel deserves my life. God has done these great things for me. I have been purchased by the blood of Jesus, and now I must, I must change. Everywhere the New Testament is filled with this expectation that Christians should change. Living things grow. God expects you to change. This is not set up so that we go, ah, in the end, I'm nothing more than a forgiven failure, and I'm just going to crawl along my whole life at this level down here in the mud, only with the gasp to reach the end at last. No, no, no. The Bible expects that those who are filled with the Spirit, those who've been bought with the blood of Jesus, will grow and will change and will become more and more like God. And therefore, God addresses us expectantly as those that are responsible to change. You might have heard the old slogan, let go and let God. That's not a good slogan. The better slogan is the one that I think J.I. Packer suggests. Trust God and get going. We're not meant just to go completely limp in the arms of the Holy Spirit and let him control us like this. We are meant, filled with the Holy Spirit, to exercise our minds and to conduct our lives and to put every energy into living as those who belong to Jesus. We've been ransomed by the blood of Christ, and we're called to live now in holy fear, knowing that Jesus has redeemed us for a glorious future. And now let's pray, because although we are responsible This is not something we can do in our own strength, and we need the Holy Spirit whom God has promised. Heavenly Father, we call upon you in fear and awe, but also in trust and love. And we thank you, Lord, that you have done such great things for us through Christ Jesus that our lives are no longer lives of futility and despair, but they are lives filled with hope. We thank you that by the Holy Spirit we've been set aside as holy people. And now, God, help us to live out what is already true of us. Help us to be obedient children in all that we do. Lord, we pray that you'd forgive us for the many ways in which we fall short every day. But Lord, do not allow us to hang back in discouragement or laziness, but help us to press toward this great call for which you have, you have given us in Christ Jesus. Lord, pour out your spirit afresh so that we would be changed, so that we would be shining with the very holiness of God, so that we can stand before you 
the day of judgment without shame, confident in what Christ has done for us, thankful for what he has done in us. In his name we pray. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.